That's John chapter 12, verse 1 to 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus, Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of, his, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Well, I've been uh, living in America for the past uh, two and three quarter years, almost three years now. And one of the, the great privileges of living there, one of the, the delights of the North Shore of Boston that I've really loved sampling is the cinema or the movie theater, I guess. They, they really are exceptional. They've got these amazing reclining seats. They've got all the snacks you could want. And as a result of this, I've seen a lot more movies in the States than I would have here, uh, not least because you don't have to take out a second mortgage to afford a cinema ticket. But one of the things I've realized as I've been watching more movies and as I've been reading more reviews is that more and more increasingly, uh, people are saying how these new movies are kind of all about spectacle and no substance. They're all kind of sound and fury signifying nothing. Or as the Texans I know would say, they're all hat and no cattle. And that's one of the criticisms that's levied about the Marvel movies and all of these new things that are coming out. They're all about creating this huge spectacle. But there's this question, are they actually signifying anything underneath that? You see, I think often we can come to a passage like this one in John and treat it in the same way. We can so easily miss the substance under the spectacle. And, and there is a lot that's happening here that is spectacular. And it's hard to understand. 
But unfortunately, if we miss the substance of what's happening here, we lose out on one of the most profound lessons about the gospel and profound lessons about the kingdom of God and the way our lives should be shaped as Christians living in that kingdom and under the King Jesus. The stakes are really high. So I want to ask the question this morning, what's the substance of what's happening here? What's really going on? And to understand that, we have two parts of the picture here that John presents to us, two halves of the story. We have a private dinner and a public ceremony. And the first scene that we're going to look at is going to show us that, firstly, Jesus is worthy of our devotion. Jesus is worthy of our devotion. The second half of the story, the second scene is going to show us that Jesus has come as king to die. Firstly, Jesus is worthy of our devotion. Secondly, because he has come as king to die. So let's turn to the first half of the story now in verses 1 through 11. Look down at those with me. You see, the scene that John sets for us in the opening verses is so important to remember here as we're looking through this passage. He tells us, that it's six days before the Passover and that Jesus is attending a private dinner with Lazarus and his family and some of the disciples and friends of Jesus. You see, if you look back in chapter 11, we've already been shown that Jesus has displayed his power over death by raising Lazarus from the tomb and also that the upcoming Passover festival, which occurs in a lot of places in John, It was a festival centered around God saving his people through mighty acts and the sacrificial blood of a lamb. The lamb given in the place, the life of the lamb given in the place of his people. And what I want you to realize as we're reading through this is that life and death, sacrifice and salvation are shot throughout the whole background of this passage. It's foreshadowing what's going to happen in the next chapters. This whole section of John, chapters 11 and 12, are kind of like a bridge section between what Jesus did in his early ministry and what he's going to do on the cross. Keep that in mind as we're looking at this passage here this morning. The echoes of the cross are shot throughout everything that we're going to look at here this morning. But the most striking thing that happens in this first half of the story is what Mary does. I'm sure that you were reading that and going, wow, that's kind of weird. And there's a lot of things there that are difficult to understand. So let's, let's look at it. Uh, firstly, I think it shows us something about Jesus' identity. It shows us that to Mary, Jesus is worth everything. To Mary, Jesus is worth absolutely everything. Listen to verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want you to notice two things about this. Firstly, there's a financial cost to what Mary is doing. There's a financial cost. We're told, actually, that the perfume is worth a year's wages. It's about 300 denarii. See, this could possibly have been Mary's inheritance. It's so expensive, it's something that you would only spend in small amounts, and you keep it for yourself so that you could sell it if you needed to and pay for your life going forwards. This is a really expensive gift. And what is Mary doing here? She's blowing it all in one go on one person. That is extravagant love. Her whole inheritance, her future, her safety... She's blowing it all on Jesus. You see, 
to Mary, Jesus is worth everything. Great personal cost. But there's also a social cost as well. See, John records here that Mary kneels down at the feet of Jesus. He would have been reclining, laid out, so she would have had access to his feet. And she unbinds her hair and wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair, which seems really strange to us. But I want you to realize that in Jesus' time, doing that in mixed company for a woman was potentially scandalous. It was a very intimate, personal thing to do. And we can even imagine it today. Maybe some of you felt a little weird as we were reading that. You're probably right to feel that. It was a scandalous thing for a woman to do. She's potentially paying a great personal social cost as she unbinds her hair and loves Jesus in this uh, manner and exposes herself to potential embarrassment. There's a financial cost. And there's a personal cost. You see, Mary is showing us here, and John is showing us by recording this, that Jesus is worth the best that Mary has. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? If you read again in verse 3, look at where she anoints him. Not the head, but the feet. See, she's saying that her very best was only good enough for the feet of Jesus. I want you to see that Jesus is worth everything, everything to Mary. She's a really important character in John's gospel. And and we miss what she's doing here at our peril. Jesus is worth everything to her. But you see there's a contrast here because if Jesus is worth everything to Mary, he's worth absolutely nothing to Judas. Look at his response in verses four and six. It was read earlier in the service. You see, what Judas is saying looks pragmatic on the surface. Seems like a pragmatist. Well, why didn't we sell it and use it for something that was more worthwhile? Why didn't we just give it to the poor? Surely Jesus is all about that. What's Mary doing here? But actually, he's ultimately hiding selfishness. He wants to take the gift and use it for himself. He's a thief. You see, Judas's seeming social compassion knows nothing of Mary's heart of worship for Jesus, does it? It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. And we'll see later that if Jesus is worth Mary's potential inheritance and a year's worth of wages to Judas, Jesus is only basically worth the lowest cash value of a human life. 30 pieces of silver. If you read in the book of Exodus, that's how much a slave is priced. And in the book of Zechariah, which we'll get onto later, where the prophecies of Jesus are from, the messianic prophecies, that 30 pieces of silver is brought up again. It's the lowest cash value of a human life, the price of a slave. To Mary, Jesus is everything. To Judas, he's nothing. To Mary, Jesus means everything that she can give. To Judas, he only means what he can get from him. And I think that forces you and me to ask this morning, What is Jesus worth to me? What is he worth? And I think you can answer that partly by looking at the cost of your love for him. It's not just financial either. It's the things that you're willing to sacrifice most for, take the biggest risks for. That's what you're worshiping. That's what you're truly living for. You see, it's the focus of your time and your talent and your treasure, that is what you worship the most. 
Now, I want to be, I want to be clear here as, as I'm saying this, that you don't earn Jesus' love by the cost that you pay. You do not earn Jesus' love by the cost that you pay. But your devotion to him, your worship of him like Mary here, shows how much you understand and value Jesus' love. The cost that you pay shows how much you value that love. You see, I'm not talking about emotional blackmail here. God is not saying, well, if you really loved me, you'd give this, this, and this. If you really loved me, you would do this. It's not coercion. It's not emotional blackmail. It's not spiritual wrangling. No, God doesn't need anything from us. The Bible is very clear about that. The Bible does, uh, God does not need anything from us. He doesn't coerce things from us. But what I'm asking here this morning, and what I think this passage is asking here this morning, is about the limit on your devotion to Jesus. What is too much to give? What would be a stretch to ask? What's too much? What's too far? I want you to look closely at this episode. Look very, very closely. Mary has already received something from Jesus. Her brother back from the dead. This, this meal that they're attending was probably intended to be a wake. But now by the love of Jesus, it's been turned into a celebration. It's been turned into a festival meal. That's amazing. See, Mary's acts here don't prompt Jesus' love. I want you to recognize that. They are a, a response to understanding what Jesus has done for her. And I want to ask you the question this morning, what have you received from Jesus? What have you received from Christ? Do you know? Do you understand it? His very life poured out in love on the cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I'm not just talking about this sort of extravagant one-off payment here. Costly love for Jesus can look as mundane as getting up every day and giving your everyday walking around life to Jesus. See, giving up our whole lives to him from the bottom to the top is costly and it will cost you. Some of you are paying that cost right now. For some of you, living for Jesus is costing you and it is hard. You feel like you're giving your inheritance away. You feel like you might be wasting things that you find precious in obedience to Jesus. But I want to encourage you. The whole house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume. The cost lingers. That smell would have been on Jesus for a while. The cost you pay is worth it and it is so received by Jesus. He loves when we show devotion to him in this way. Now, what might this look like? This costly devotion to Jesus. It might look as big as giving up everything you have and going overseas to be a missionary. It might mean moving to Sweden or the East, somewhere like that. It might mean moving to Japan. It might mean moving to Indonesia. That's what it might look like. You've got to ask yourself that question and search your heart about that. It might mean sacrificing your reputation by speaking out for Christ at work or passing over an opportunity to be promoted because you're standing up for Jesus and the law of God in your workplace. It might mean continuing to, lo continuing to lovingly and patiently serve your family and children and husband or wife in a Christ-like way even though they don't really understand what you're doing. That is a cost. That is a sacrifice. You will be pouring yourself out. Is he worthy of all that? 
Is Jesus worthy of costly sacrifice and devotion? Now, this passage absolutely is not saying that the poor are not worthy of our sacrifice and love. That's not what it's saying at all. God himself became a poor person. So it's clearly not saying that we shouldn't look after the poor. That's actually one of the ways that we show our love for Jesus and and display our devotion to him. It's not saying that. But it is saying that Jesus is ultimately worthy above all things. It's about our priorities. It's about who we put first. It's about what motivates our love. See, in America, there's a group of Chinese students that I've, I've gotten to know, and, and it's been really great to get to know these guys. And I was chatting to them at one point and, and just making small talk and asking them, you know, what is it about America that you've appreciated the most? And I thought I'd hear something like, oh, it's, it's the, the cinemas that we like the most, or it's the food that we like the most, or it's going to the malls that we like the most. But that's not what they said. Do you know what they said? They appreciated most about America? The library. It's the library that they like the most. And do you know why? It's because in China, their access to knowledge is restricted. Now, in, in America, they can go and read about whatever they want, whenever they want. They have access, unfettered and free access, to information. I did not expect them to say that. Usually when I go to the library, it's a necessary evil because I have to get a bunch of work done. But I tell you, the next time I walked into Gordon Conwell's library to do some work, I was viewing it very, very differently. I valued the library so much more differently because I had it from their perspective. I wonder, have you gotten over Jesus? Have you missed what his sacrifice really means? Maybe you need to rediscover Jesus' love for you or discover it for the first time. Is he worthy? But why is he worthy? I can say until I'm blue in the face up the front that he is worthy, but I want to show you why he's worthy as we move into the next part of this passage. You see, at the end of our section here at this private dinner, John helps us to see why Jesus is worthy. Not just because of what he's done for Mary, but because of what he's about to do. Not just for Mary, but for all of us. He's worthy because he goes to the cross. You see, in ancient cultures... There were two times, two main times that you would anoint someone, set them apart for some special service, as as a king or at the time of their burial. You anoint a king or you anoint a corpse. See, Mary is combining them both here. And you'll see in Jesus' response in verses 7 and 8, that's how he interprets the anointing. She's keeping it for the day of my burial. You see, Jesus is both king and corpse. He is a king anointed for a cross. We're being reminded that Jesus is the king who has come to die. And just in case you missed it, we're reminded of the dangers in verses 9 to 11. The Pharisees and the the leaders, the chief priests, want to put Jesus to death and Lazarus to death because he's a threat to them. Jesus is the king who has come to die. So we've seen in the first hand, that Mary's anointing of Jesus marks him out as God's worthy and chosen king. And this sets the scene for what comes next, Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry, a really famous part of the gospel story. But like the section that we've just covered and considered, it's full of symbolism. So I want to unpick it a little bit for us here. It's going to remind us that Jesus is worthy because he's come to die. Jesus is worthy because he's come to die. Look down at verses 12 through 19. 
See, what we get here is this massive crowd of people streaming out of Jerusalem to greet Jesus on the way. And they give him this amazing royal welcome. You can see that in two details that I want to draw out from verses 13 and 15. First, what do they take up? We're familiar with it. They take up palm branches. These would have been branches of the date palm tree, which would have grown all over Israel at that point. You see, palm branches at that time were a symbol of life. You see, because they have particularly deep roots, palm trees are found where oases are, where life-giving water is found. So they were a, a matter of rejoicing for people who lived in very arid conditions and needed water. They're also evergreen, and the fruit that they produce is good whether it's fresh or whether it's dried. It's nourishing in whatever state that it's in. So they symbolize life. But not only that, but the branches at this time were a national symbol for Israel. When they take up these branches, they're not just hailing Jesus as a life giver. They're hailing him as the Messiah, as the king. We've, we found coins from this time minted that have palm branches on them. It was a symbol of national identity. Do you see do you see the people are hailing Jesus as their coming, life-bringing Savior? But they don't know just how far that's going to go. But secondly, they quote prophecy at Jesus as well. Many of you have probably heard the word Hosanna before. Hosanna. It, it's, we, we tend to think of it as a generally religious or spiritual sounding word to say. It sounds pretty good. Hosanna. It sounds very kind of spiritual to say it but it's actually a direct translation of something from the Old Testament. Hoshia na. It means, Lord, save now. It's an imperative. Lord, save now. And by the way, you can only find that phrase, Hoshia na, in one place in the Old Testament. Psalm 118, which is exactly what the crowds are quoting at this point. You see, it was considered one of the prophecies of the Messiah as it talked about God himself coming to save his people. It literally means, like I said, save us now. They know what they're asking for as they're waving these symbols of life as Jesus comes into the city. They're asking for Yahweh himself to show up and to save them. So it's charged. The whole atmosphere is charged at the moment. How is Jesus going to respond to this? Is he going to reject it? Or is he going to receive it? No, he's going to receive it. And to understand that, we've got to talk about donkeys. Bear with me. See, what's quoted here by John is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's something that we're familiar with. It's been read earlier in the service for us. Your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, it's kind of weird. Why would Jesus choose to ride into the city on a donkey? What's so important about that? Why doesn't he choose a horse? Surely there was a horse available somewhere. And for those of us who grew up going to petting zoos and taking donkey rides on the beach, it can seem a little ridiculous. But you see, that's not what donkeys represented in the ancient world. They were actually the mount of a king, if you can believe that. You see, when Solomon, King Solomon, enters Jerusalem to be anointed as king, he sits on David's mule and he is heralded as king. See, throughout the whole Old Testament, if you wanted to show that you were a king, you rode in on a donkey. There's stories like that all throughout the Old Testament. See, for Jesus to come into Jerusalem on a horse would be like the prime minister showing up to number 10 in a battle tank. You see, only enemies come into a city on a horse to usurp it, to fight it, to claim it for themselves. But the king, the ruler, rides in slowly 
and in style. That is what is happening at the moment. You see, the choice of a donkey here, I want you to see, is a very bold statement that Jesus is making. He's saying, I am the rightful ruler of this city. During the Passover, you would only walk into Jerusalem or be carried if you couldn't walk. There was only one person at this point riding into Jerusalem, and it's Jesus. Do not miss what he is saying here. You see, Jesus is claiming the identity of the Messiah, the King of God himself in Zechariah 9. Yes, this king is humble, but it's not the donkey that makes him humble. It's not. You see, John makes no mention of the humility part of the prophecy here. Rather, what makes Jesus humble is the fact that he is the king, but he uses his power in service of his people. He uses his power in service of his people and for the sake of his people. And John makes this clear by recording that all of this doesn't yet make sense to the disciples. In verse 16, he talks about this. It only becomes clear what Jesus is doing after his glorification. What does that mean? Actually, if you've read John before, this word glorification comes up a lot. It's a very loaded word and phrase for John. It refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what glorification represents to John. That's what the glory of God is expressed in, in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it reminds us that for Jesus, kingship and authority are expressed through sacrifice and they are defined by sacrifice, not by grasping power, but by releasing it and using it in service of other people. I think just as Mary didn't realize that she was anointing Jesus for his death and, and Jesus had to interpret that for her, the crowd here are hailing Jesus as king and they don't realize just what that's gonna cost him. He's the coming king, he's the Messiah, but he's come for a cross. He's the anointed king, he's the Messiah, but he's being anointed for burial. See, I think this teaches us something profound about the pattern that your life and my life should follow as Christians. Now, I want you to take a step back and think about the whole of chapters 11 and 12. See, the raising of Lazarus is supposed to show Jesus' power over death itself, but intertwined with this is Jesus' submission to death. That is true humility. The one who displays power over death, submitting to death to save those who have no power over it. That is true humility. That is using your power in service of others. That is a king worthy of worship. That is a king worthy of our devotion. You see, if the kingdom of God was inaugurated in that way, how could we expect it to turn out any differently now? How could we expect it to be any different in our lives as we live as Christians? See, unfortunately, giving up power and service for others is hard to do. And it's not been the case throughout most of church history. If you read about it, the ancient church, the early church, seized power to fill the gap left by the Roman Empire. And the abuses of power were horrendous. Or in Modern times, in nowadays, the US, in the USA, evangelicalism has been widely criticized for grasping at political power to gain influence in the culture. They want to put themselves on top instead of realizing that power is best used in service of other people and laying it down to lift others up. You see, the gospel is so easily abused as a way to hoard power and influence rather than use it for the least. Some of you will have been in churches where that has been the case. Some of you will have seen leaders, pastors even, who have seized power for themselves and not realized that it's meant to be used in service to people. We are so 
blessed in this church to have leaders and elders and pastors who use their authority and power in service to other people. But not only this, have you noticed the interplay of triumph and tragedy, life and death, celebration and mourning? It's the same pattern over and over again. Read John's gospel, you'll see it everywhere. We see that here that the story of the kingdom of God is one of triumph through tragedy, not despite it. The story of the kingdom of God is about triumph through tragedy, not despite tragedy and weakness. Let me ask you, are weaknesses and setbacks in your life uncomfortable sidebars, or are they the places where God's power is displayed? Are they the places where Christ is lifted up, where he's glorified in your weakness, where he's obeyed through your struggles? Do you avoid looking weak at all costs? Do you try and deny that you're struggling? It's not very British, by the way, to admit that you are struggling. But are you falling into that trap? Or do you embrace weakness? Do you embrace struggle as the platform for the display of the glory of God in your life? Are you struggling this morning? As Martin Luther put it, are you a theologian of the cross? God is. He became a vulnerable human. It's a scandal that confronts us in the Christmas story. But through this vulnerability came immeasurable glory. Immeasurable glory. You see, for Jesus, his execution was his coronation. He was dressed with shame instead of glory. He was crowned with thorns instead of a crown of gold. He was lifted up on the cross. The cross was his throne and his palace was a tomb. And because of this, God raised him from the dead and seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Because of it, not despite of it. You see, Jesus doesn't get to the throne despite the weakness and trials. The glory isn't, dis isn't displayed despite the weakness and trials. It is displayed because of the weakness and trials. And even now, he's ruling on our behalf. He's ruling on our behalf. He continues to use his power for our good. He still bears the wounds before the throne. The marks of his weakness and suffering are the marks of his glory. And that's what he's displaying here as he goes into the city. He's the coming king who will be nailed to a cross, raised from the dead, and will rule on our behalf just as he laid his life down on our behalf. Vulnerability and weakness are woven into the tapestry of God's story. They are a pattern for the kingdom of God. Do not try to deny it and do not try and, and pick it out. It is part of the story. Because we have a humble king who showed God's glory through weakness, we can be humble as well and we can live in a humble way. So, Will you follow this king this year? Will you follow him in 2020? Will you give your all to him? Will you lay your life down for him, either in the big things or the everyday, hour by hour, minute by minute, service to other people? Will you do that? Is he worthy of all this? Is he worthy of all this? Do you need to rediscover his worth? And do you have a framework for understanding that your life includes weaknesses and trials by design as the platform to display the glory of God and the gospel? 
when people look at this church, are they going to say, wow, those people seem to have it all together? Or, or are they gonna say, really, those people? That's where God is displaying his glory? Yes, we go out in the power of the Spirit. Yes, we go out with the power of the gospel. But it's not our power. It's his power. In your weakness, those are great opportunities to display the power of the gospel. There's an old hymn by a man named Samuel Whitlock Gandhi that captures what we're talking about here beautifully. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. By weakness and defect, Jesus won the mead and crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell lay low, made sin he sin o'erthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Tragedy through tragedy to triumph. That is the story of the kingdom. This is our worthy anointed king, Jesus. Will you follow him? Will you follow? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are worthy of all of our devotion and all of our following of you. Help us to make those sacrifices. Help us to rediscover and realize just how glorious you are. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.